Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I started out looking at every Prime Minister in Canadian history, and we're right in the middle of every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, but we took a break from that, because an election was called. So right now I'm doing 36 election episodes in a row, to coincide with our 36-day election period. If you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Wednesday and Saturday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I do all of these full-time. The writing, the research, everything. I do it every day, all day. And it's a lot of work. So, any dollars you give help keep it all going, and I'll make sure to thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Four years after Canada was nearly torn apart over the 1917 election and the conscription crisis, the next election would roll around the bend. For the first time since 1887, the Liberals were not represented by Sir Wilfrid Laurier, who had died in 1919. He was replaced by a new man, William Lyon Mackenzie King. The Conservatives had been led by Sir Robert Borden since 1900, but this election, following his retirement, Arthur Meehan had come in as leader and was now serving as Prime Minister. While this election would be far less divisive than the previous election, it still had its share of drama. The election is notable in the fact that for the first time in Canadian history, neither the Liberals or the Conservatives were technically official opposition. Why did I say technically? Well, I'll get to that. That role would be filled by a new party that had sprang up in Western Canada, the Progressive Party. Following the war, the Unionist government would begin to fracture as former Liberals who had supported conscription left the party due to high tariffs on farm products announced in the budget. This group, made up mostly of Western Canada MPs, was led by Thomas Alexander Carrar, and they would form into the Progressive Party. Some Liberals would stay with the Conservatives, while others would rejoin the Liberal Party, where they were often seen with suspicion. Arthur Meehan attempted to continue with the Unionist Alliance, and attempted to rename the party the National, Liberal, and Conservative Party, but this didn't take. Then, despite still having another year left before an election needed to be called, Meehan called an election. One official would write to him later on the matter, stating, quote, This fall is the worst possible time you could have chosen for an election. End quote. Over the previous four years, the war had ended and the labor movement would begin to rise. In 1919, the Winnipeg General Strike occurred, and it was crushed by the Conservative government, including Meehan, who played a key role in the violent suppression of the strikers. This would hurt him heavily in Manitoba, and among organized labor supporters for the coming election. The three parties would all take different platforms, which appealed to different areas of the country. The progressives were committed to the removal of protective tariffs, which was a pillar of the Conservative Party since the days of Sir Johnny Macdonald and the National Policy. The tariffs were seen as a hindrance to farmers and workers, while only helping the businesses of Ontario and Quebec. The progressives were okay with the gradual removal, and this was a position that King and the Liberals attached themselves to, in order to sway some progressive voters over the Liberals. Meehan was having none of this in the election, choosing to attack the progressives and labeling them as socialists and a group out to destroy the social order. 
In regards to the removal of tariffs and the dreaded free trade debate that had taken the Liberals out of power in 1911, the Liberal position was, according to the party itself, quote, The tariff issue today is not between free trade and protection, or between farmers and manufacturers or urban workers. The issue is whether the tariff shall be framed at the dictation of a few great interests or revised in accordance with the will of the people working in stores and offices and factories. Is there to be a real democracy or a sham democracy? It is for the people of Canada to say. End quote. King would begin the first of his major campaign tours that he would do every election until his last in 1945. In a railway car he leased from the CPR, he took two trips one to the Maritimes, and one out to the Canadian West. He would meet with local and regional leaders and made one speech per day. Writing in his diary about the speeches, including those in hockey rinks, he would state, quote, At eight, went to a meeting in Red Rink, a cold, cheerless, dismal place, spoke with a hat and coat on, not to good effect, end quote. King and Meehan had actually known each other since they both attended university in the 1890s, and both men hated the other. King was no fan of Meehan and would routinely criticize him. Even later in life, when Meehan was attempting to win a seat in a by-election, King did not run a Liberal candidate against him as per custom, but he put resources behind the CCF opponent who would beat Meehan and end the man's political career in the process. King would actually come across Meehan during the campaign tour, and he would write, quote, Went to the train at two, met Meehan at the station. I was shocked at his appearance and voice. He had hardly any voice left and had a bad cough. He looks to me to be in the advanced stages of tuberculosis. I should not be surprised to see a complete collapse any moment. I shall be surprised if he finished out the campaign. He looks to me done. End quote. Meehan was seen as stiff and lawyer-like, which did not appeal to the people of the West. The literature given out by the Conservatives was also very dry and written in a lawyer manner, and many speculated that Meehan had written the pieces himself. Meehan was noted for being one of the best orators in the history of the House of Commons, though, and he could easily debate King and was known for his razor-sharp tongue. During the two-month election campaign, it was estimated that Meehan had made 250 speeches. Despite his skill with speeches, though, he was not able to convince those in the West of the importance of having protective tariffs. Meehan would receive a telegram from an official in Manitoba that showed the lost cause the West was to the Conservatives. It stated, quote, I do not know how close you are in touch with Western conditions at the present time, but it seems to me that the election will be won or lost east of the Great Lakes. I do not think you can count on many seats west of there. End quote. The election was also the first in which the majority of Canadian women could vote, and it would be the first in which women ran for public office. The Conservatives did not waste an opportunity to remind women voters that it was their party that gave women the vote. The Liberals countered that they would have done the same if they were in power at the time, adding that several Liberal provincial governments have already given the women the vote. Conservative literature touted that it was a woman's role to keep traditional society together. The literature stated, quote, It may well be that the future of the entire race is to be henceforth in women's hands. If this is to be so, then there is one thing that the woman voter cannot escape, her responsibility, end quote. The Liberals would also court the female vote, and in its pamphlet, Women in Politics, it stated, quote, Every woman will, on that day, determine by her vote what party or set of men will administer the government of Canada for the next five years. Women are more concerned with the home life of the nation than any other interest. The real question, therefore, for them are, how can a political party affect the home, 
the cost of living, end quote. The Dominion Elections Act would also be passed in 1920, and it would allow women to run for Parliament, but not if they were Indigenous or Asian, who also couldn't vote. The Act also created the office of the Chief Electoral Officer, and Oliver Bigger, a former Army Colonel, was chosen as the first person to occupy this position. The Chief Electoral Officer was a Deputy Minister, and the individual's job was to preside over the election and prepare a report after each election. Bigger would have a massive job ahead of him. He would have 75,000 brand new election officials who supervised the process, which now included women who could vote, doubling the amount of eligible voters in the country. Many newspapers would turn against the Conservatives as well in this election, including some that had supported Conservatives in the past. The Montreal Gazette would state in a headline, quote, Quebec will not have Mr. Meehan, end quote. The Toronto Star would criticize Meehan, for appearing to side with the United States during his brief time as Prime Minister, rather than the British Empire, stating, quote, The Prime Minister had a chance to show that a Conservative leader regards it as a duty and a privilege to cooperate with the British Empire in policies which its responsible officials think essential to imperial safety, end quote. In the election, the Liberals came back into power for the first time in a decade, winning 118 seats, the exact amount needed for a majority government. The Progressive Party became the official opposition, finishing with 58 seats, while the Conservatives had the worst collapse in Canadian history to that point, falling 104 seats to 49. Even Mean would lose his seat in Portage la Prairie. Mirroring the collapse of the Liberals 10 years earlier, eight Conservative cabinet ministers lost their seats. Mean would win his seat in a by-election after the election. The Montreal Gazette would write, quote, The verdict is decisive. It has been a good fight on the part of the Prime Minister, but a feeble one on the part of his party. A lack of touch between ministers and members on the one hand, and the electorate on the other, has chilled the ardour of the old-time Conservatives. End quote. The Toronto Mail and Empire would put blame on Quebec for the Conservative loss, stemming from the conscription crisis four years earlier. It stated, quote, Quebec went to the polls yesterday in a frame of mind that was far from judicial, but not farther than at any other time since the beginning of the war. Its peoples were determined to punish the men in office who had placed on the statute books and enforced the Military Services Act for the purpose of enforcing our defenders at the front. End quote. Echoing the division created by the conscription crisis, the Liberals won every single seat, 65 in total in Quebec, as well as all 16 seats in Nova Scotia. Overall, the Liberals carried most of the Maritimes. The Conservatives, meanwhile, found their strongest support in Ontario, where they won 36 seats, while the Progressive and Liberal parties won 20 and 21 seats, respectively. In the West, the Progressive Party won all 8 seats in Alberta, 15 of 16 in Saskatchewan, and 11 of 14 in Manitoba. The Conservatives also won no seats in the Prairie Provinces. Even though we were now getting into the modern era of elections, there were still people who were trying to influence the election. In Montreal, 15 men were arrested in the morning of the election on the charge of being prospective election telegraphers. And in their pockets were numerous cards bearing the names of electors. Another five men were arrested as they were prepared to telegraph votes. All the men had cards bearing names other than their own. In all, the 20 men had 35 cards that would have allowed them to complete fraudulent votes. And the phrase telegrapher at the time meant someone who impersonates a voter. 
Bets still continued on election results as well, with large sums being put down, some as high as $10,000 or $146,000 today, and even money. On the day he would win the election, King would write in his diary, quote, Reached Ottawa at 7 a.m., pulled my vote a few minutes after 8, came to my rooms, oh so glad to see them again, all so peaceful and quiet there, knelt in prayer before dear mother's picture and thanked God for his protecting providence through it all, end quote. He would continue looking at his prospects in the election, stating, quote, Win or lose, I feel I have fought a good fight, run a good course and kept the faith, and I shall be happy and contented whatever the outcome. End quote. Later in the night, upon winning the election, he would write, quote, I am glad our party has won. It is a great victory, but my thoughts are mostly of the dear ones gone before and of the work ahead. End quote. In his statement to the press, King would highlight that the election result showed that many Canadians agreed with him in his criticism of the Conservative government. He would write, quote, The people of Canada have shown by their overwhelming defeat of the Mian administration that they realize the truth of the charges of autocracy and usurpation, which I have been making against the Mian government since the Right Honourable Mr. Mian took control of the country. The fact that three provinces, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island, have voted solidly for Liberals is in itself evidence that the Liberal policy has appealed not only to one class or group or race, but to all classes. End quote. Among the five women who ran for public office, Agnes MacPhail of the Progressive Party was elected in this election, becoming the first woman MP in Canadian history. She would remain in the House of Commons till 1940. From 1921 to 1935, she was the only woman in the House of Commons, until Martha Black was elected in 1935. As you heard, Miss McPhail's one of the liveliest of the panel. And with Miss McPhail present, women in politics soon came to the fore. But they can't see me, and that's nice. The air audience, they can't see me. But uh, there is no difference that I know of, except that uh, I think either a man or a woman must have had a great interest in public affairs previously or they wouldn't, no one would think of choosing them, nominating them. They must have shown their interest in some way. Don't you think there'd be more women in the Canadian Parliament if there were more women in municipal offices across this country? Oh, yes, if there were more women in everything of a public nature, there'd be more women candidates. Up to the present time, generally speaking, whenever a woman gets a nomination, she gets a nomination in a constituency where the chances of election are not too hopeful. No, some, some nominations the men don't want. But there's only one Miss McPhail. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. Upon her election, she would state, quote, I shall never forget that I do, in a measure, represent all women of Canada, and what I do will strengthen or weaken their cause. My chief aspiration is to be in Ottawa just what I am here, I want really to represent the people who are sending me and of whom I am one. End quote. Earlier in this episode, I stated that the Progressive Party was the official opposition, and while they technically were, the party refused the role, which then fell to the Conservatives, making Meehan the leader of the official opposition. Chief Electoral Officer Mowat would prepare his report after the election, citing difficulties for the electors, mostly women, who had been left off voter lists. 
In his report, he asked that more revision officers be appointed and advanced polls also be established. Parliament would respond to this by reducing the number of voters needed for setting up an advanced poll from 50 to 15. While the Liberals did win 118 seats, right on the line for a majority, resignations would turn his majority into a minority. The Liberals would lose two by-elections, but then gain two seats back when the two progressive MPs crossed the floor. By November 25, 1924, until the 1925 election, the Liberals held a two-seat majority in the House of Commons. King worked with several progressive MPs in order to pass legislation throughout the next four years, preventing his government from falling until a confused vote brought it down in 1925. But more on that in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the 1921 election. If you did, please leave a rating and review. Tomorrow, we're going to be looking at the 1925 and 1926 elections. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Again, if you like, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. And I'd like to say thank you to all of my wonderful patrons, and if I mispronounce any names, I do apologize. Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, one anonymous person who I really appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, and Iris Gray. Information from Elections Canada, Library and Archives, Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, Mean and the Montreal Tycoons, Dynasty and Interludes, Ottawa Journal, Montreal Gazette, and the Toronto Star. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.